Uh, I am so proud to be part of this church. I'm so happy with this church, um, with uh, hearing the, the praises and prayers of this church and how quickly this congregation has moved to uh, lift up a, a, you know, our, our brothers and sisters in a crisis, but also so quick to send people you know to wherever there is a crisis and you know, we've got missionaries in the field right now and we, we we're going to send some more uh next sunday we'll pray ethiopia team does that sound all right next sunday yeah oh something like that. yeah i have not over here and then a short from the guy who's in the team, so i'll listen to um it's it's just it's good every now and then to get a small glimpse of what our Father must look at being proud of his children. Mm -hmm. um, to see, ah, yes, my body. That's what it's doing. Now, today you have an extra opportunity to be uh, the united body of Christ, the family of God, which has, you know, parents, uncles, aunts, cousins, children, and everything like that. Um, because we have, uh, you know, the kids in, in service. We don't even have Sunday school teachers, which is, is fine. Um, but this adds an extra task for mothers and fathers specifically. Because what I'm asking you to do is uh, listen, of course, to the sermon, um, but also what you're going to be processing is how you are going to explain this or uh, ask questions and start conversations about this with your children that uh, may or may, may not be listening during all the sermon, which is okay too, because we don't expect all of that. I, I know which one of you, which ones of you come to sleep during service every week. <laughs> If you need color, color. If you need to take a nap, that's okay. Um, the rest of us are going to be sitting in Second uh, Corinthians, chapter eleven. Uh, we're going. We've been going through Paul's letter to the Corinthians for quite some time now. We're going to read Second Corinthians chapter eleven, sixteen through thirty-three, and then study through this passage, seeking to be like Christ, seeking to live our lives towards Christ. Paul writes this, he says, I say again, in 2 Corinthians 11, 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise you might put that in little finger quotes there so you put up with it if one brings you into bondage if one devours you if one takes from you if one exalts himself if one strikes you on the face to our shame i say that we were too weak for that but in whatever anyone is bold i, I speak foolishly i am bold also are they hebrews so am i are they israelites so am i are they the seed of abraham so am i are they ministers of Christ? I, I speak of the fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys, often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils of the city. In perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. 
Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not alone. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas the king, was guarding the city of the Damas Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Jesus, we, we trust you. We trust you with, with this, this word that you're feeding to us. Uh, we trust that you have things to, to teach us today. Uh, we trust that this passage, which wasn't written to us originally, but is for us by your spirit, is, is sufficient to lead us into godliness. So we pray an anointing on our ears, on our hearts, on, on my voice, on, on this time when we are dedicating to you, that you would be pleased and that you would bless us with the blessings that you want to give. Paul says he's going to sound like a fool. Uh, those first few verses, really verse 16 through 21, it's a long way of saying, okay guys, I know I'm going to sound like an idiot here, but bear with me, which is literally what he said back in verse 1. He says, bear with me, I'm going to sound like a fool. Now, he's going to go a step further and saying, I'm going to sound like a fool. That is, I'm going to boast about my qualifications. Because boasting and telling people, you know, how awesome you are and how hard you work, that's actually pretty dumb. He said, I'm going to act like a fool because it turns out those are like your favorite people. <laughs> Fools who boast. So since you like that so much, I'm going to come and sound like those guys. And yeah, praise be to God. Based on the company that you guys have been keeping, it seems like you really like fools. That's verse 19. He says, before you put up with fools gladly. That's a burn. This insult is right up there with the first time in, in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, I'm paraphrasing here, this is the, the Talmonian translation. Right when he says, Jesus loves foolish things, very best. He loves foolish things. So guess what? He means he loves you, especially. <laughs> that's that's where it's Corinthians one. I think Tarsus must have been in the American South because Paul would have been he would have taken to saying bless your heart. I mean you're an idiot. Like Paul would have been he would have just slid right into that kind of stuff. And in these first few verses, Paul is saying, I'm going to sound like a fool, which is apparently your favorite thing, because of the false teachers that you have welcomed, they're the most foolish kinds of people. They're abusive and they're boastful. And apparently you love that too. He said, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you. Remember, these were like preachers for hire. They'd go in and impress you with their fancy words and then give you the bill at the end of the sermon. Uh, if, if one exalts himself, he says, if one strikes you on the face, and then he says, even that's too far for me. I can't pretend to be that foolish, though I wish I could. He says, to our shame, I say, that we were too weak for that. For what? To punch you in the face. You've really got to hear Paul's tone in all of this, because if you if you spiritualize it and put a really glossy church kind of, you know, veneer over it, you, you end up scratching your head. You're like, why is he, why is that to be shame? I don't understand. No, he's saying, you like it when people abuse you. And like, I'm really, I'm really kind of ashamed that I didn't have the courage to come smack that out of your mouth when I was there last. That's what Paul is preaching. It, it's confusing unless you realize that he's he's kind of mocking them. He's taking on the persona now of a braggart because that's how their false teachers talk. Only instead of saying, I'm this smart and I'm this strong and I'm this famous and I know the Bible so, so well, 
He's going to impress and wow his audience with his terrible, awful, painful life. He's going to list all of his sufferings and say, who does this remind you of? This kind of reminds you of crucifixion, doesn't it? What about this suffering for the lost? Who does that remind you of? Yeah, those are my qualifications. Now, this is, of course, how Paul has already talked about, talked to himself in this book. He talks about this, talks like this in his other letters. But here in chapter 11, he's pulling out all the stops. He's going to list every terrible thing that's happened to him that can come to mind. And he's going to show off in the weirdest way. Not by comparing points on the scoreboard, but rather comparing stars and hospital bills. If you don't remember why Paul is going to talk like this, I'll remind you that he's intentionally measuring his ministry by the standard of Christ's ministry. Christ suffers for the church. So Paul's going to suffer for the church. Christ was rich. He doesn't get richer than heaven. He became poor for our sakes. So Paul is going to do the same thing. He says, I'll become poor for the sake of the church. Rather than being those who compare themselves among themselves, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul's saying, I don't compare myself with other people. I'm comparing myself with Christ. That's what I want to be like when I grow up. And again, this is not the first time that Paul has talked about his sufferings. It won't be the last time, even in this book, that he'll talk about his sufferings. In the next chapter, he's going to sum it all up for us and show us the other reason why he would think it's a good idea to make a list like this in the first place. In chapter 12, verse 9, Paul records Jesus' words directly to him. And it's a key passage in the whole book of 2 Corinthians. It's key to understanding Paul's ministry. These are the words you know. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather believe in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is with that perspective that Paul shares this testimony. And Paul, in his heart, with all he is, he's pursuing Christ. That grace that's sufficient. He's boasting in these things, knowing that when he's weak, he's strong. But in, in talking with the fools in Corinth, he needs to bring things down to their level. And he's going to sound like a fool. And that foolishness is comparing himself with the false teachers. Not something he actually does. It's not like that's what keeps him up at night. But he's presenting these things in this way in order to be understood. Look at verse 22. Are they Hebrews? The, the, the false teachers. So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Okay, he's not talking about his sufferings yet. This sounds more like a normal introduction, but it's still Paul speaking like a fool. He's acting like one of those people who compared themselves with the other, you know, standing on tiptoes to see who's taller and saying, like, hair counts, hair counts. <laughs> you know, evidently this kind of pedigree was impressive to the Corinthians. And we know from the way Paul talks about it here and in Philippians that it doesn't matter a bit to Paul. In Philippians 3, verse 4, Paul calls this kind of thing confidence in the flesh. And he says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge 
of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So Paul writes to the Corinthians saying, well, I'm a Hebrew, I'm Jewish, look at me. He's not listing his favorite things about himself. Saying, you should listen to me because I'm an Israelite. He's saying, what confidence I could have in the flesh, I, I outrank everyone else that you're going to compare. But it's a roundabout way of saying the same thing. He's saying, Philippians 3, 3, he says, for we who worship God in the spirit have no confidence in the flesh. None of this matters. None of this should matter to you. Apparently, the false teachers that the Corinthians were taken in by had some sort of impressive Israelite heritage. Uh, they could have been the, the Judaizers, Jews, Jewish converts who reverted to the Mosaic Law and wanted to bring as many people with them as possible. Now, one of their main things was that in order to be a Christian and follow Jesus, they said you needed to keep the whole law. You had to be essentially convert to Judaism on your way to Christianity. But... If the Corinthians are impressed with some sort of Jewishness here, Paul could raise his hand and say, like, hey, I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> Literally, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. of the tribe of Benjamin. I check all the boxes. And I'm telling you right now, all the boxes are trash. It's not about that stuff. It's about Jesus. And then he changes his tone and gets right into what real life is like in ministry for Paul. In verse 23, he says, are they ministers of Christ? Oh, okay, then let's compare resumes. I speak as a fool. This is, this is a dumb way to talk, but I'm going to do it because I love you guys. It says, I am more. I'm more of a minister of Christ. A minister is a servant. He says, I'm more of a servant. Well, by what metric? Well, you know a servant if they're serving. That's how you spot them. Okay? And Paul says, you can look at my life and know that I'm not in this to promote myself. I'm not building my own kingdom here. Look at my track record. You can see it's very clear. I am the one who is behaving like a servant or even a slave. I'm doing the dirtiest jobs. I'm putting in the longest hours. And these hours are not spent pleasantly. Let's, let's take this job description one item at a time. He says, in labors more abundant. In other words, he said, I work harder. Look at me, I work harder. He said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. I labored more abundantly than they all. We have evidence of this. He's obviously writing more letters. Uh, he's planting more churches. He's going on more missionary journeys than anyone else that we know about. He says, in stripes above measure. These are the scars on his body. In Galatians 6, he calls them the marks of Jesus. Knowing that his suffering for God was something, the two of them, Jesus and Paul, how many times had he been beaten for his faith? How many scars did he have from mobs? He had lost count. He says, strike beyond measure. In prisons, more frequently. More frequently than the false teachers, the so-called super apostles that the Corinthians oohed and awed over. They're smart. They're impressive. You know, their sermons are really great on YouTube, whatever. And, and this, is the, this is the context for how Christian service should look like in a hostile culture. Paul's like, yeah, okay, they're, they're great and they're smart, but have they even done time? <laughs> we're, we're, we're not there yet where we live, but this has been common, the common state of Christianity in various times and places throughout history. Paul shows his ministry to be legitimate by showing that he's willing to endure anything for the sake of that ministry. He says, in deaths, often. Pause there. Uh, how many times have you died, Paul? That's a really good question that you might want to ask. It sounds like Paul's dying all the time. That's a pretty strong claim. But there is at least one time in the book of Acts where Paul is 
is attacked by a mob, they stone him, and he's left four dead. And many people suggest or think that he actually died and was raised from the dead in that moment. It could have been during that moment when he was caught up to the third heaven and saw things that are unlawful to speak. That's possible. And if that's possible, maybe that wasn't the only time that it happened to Paul. Um, but also, you could read this and say that the claim is extending to the larger family of missionaries he was acquainted with. When you say, you know, when you when you suffer a death in the family, it's not necessarily you who died, it's definitely you that suffered the death. Does that make sense? So he's saying in deaths often, it's like when we go on mission trips, we don't all come back. And that's just how it goes. He could be saying he suffered the loss of others on in his in missionary journeys. A third option still is that Paul is referring to the constant state, the daily dying that he says he undergoes. He puts the self to death. He puts the flesh to death through all of these other sacrifices. Let's go on. Verse 24 says, From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Okay, he's, he's already mentioned stripes, but this is a more official reckoning. The 40 minus one would be included in his stripes without number, but wouldn't make up the, the total. Um, this is sum of his countless stripes. Why 40 minus one? Well, Jewish law uh, says you can't exceed 40 lashes when you give punishment. It's right there in Deuteronomy 25, verse 3. And the law-abiding legalists that they were, they didn't want to accidentally lose count and then go over 40 and then break the law, right? Like, what if you just got really into it and you had that one last swing and then you break the law? That's no good. So they stopped at 39 just to be careful. Paul had been put through this kind of punishment five times. This wasn't the angry mob. He was sentenced to this punishment by a legitimate, seemingly legitimate court of law. Three times I was beaten with rods. This is another official punishment. Perhaps one less severe than 39 lashes. He says, once I was stoned. We read about that in Acts chapter 14. He was stoned very shortly after those same people tried to worship him. Crowds are fickle. Don't trust them. <laughs> uh, he says, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. You read about one of these shipwrecks in Acts, but it wasn't the only one. There were three shipwrecks, and one of these times he was stranded for a day and a night just staying afloat by holding onto the ship's wreckage, just floating to the island, right? Can you imagine meeting a missionary who had been in three plane crashes? You're like, those are, no, those are good numbers. That's serious. I do not want to fly with you, ever. <laughs> And then, and then meeting that missionary, being impressed with, you know, their, their sacrifices for the gospel. Can you imagine them holding up that story as evidence of God's blessing and favor and calling on their life? Actually, yeah, I can imagine that for sure, because I've met missionaries. This is how they talk. Paul's saying, I, I've been shipwrecked three times. You, you know, the, the, the false teachers, I doubt they've even been shipwrecked twice. Lucky <laughs> <laughs> numbers, can I get those up? Yes, that, but Paul is saying, this is the evidence that God has called me to this thing. And you need to acknowledge this call on my life. He says, in journeys, often. I mean, we know Paul traveled a lot. Um, you know, he goes to all these churches that he visits, that he writes letters to, that we have in the New Testament. You read the book of Acts, and you're, you kind of keep track. So I think the second missionary journey, and his third missionary journey. And a lot of people figure there was a, another one where he made it all the way to Spain, maybe. We know he intended to do that. He traveled a lot. Some estimates put Paul's total missionary mileage at somewhere near 10,000 miles 
mostly by foot. He says he was in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentile, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren. It's like the worst Dr. Seuss book ever. And it, it says, everywhere I went, everywhere I went, I was in trouble. These are all the dangers that he faced that could have resulted in his death, but didn't. Traveling by sea was dangerous, obviously. He was persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. He's an equal opportunity offender. They all hated him. Everybody wanted him dead. Some of these dangerous situations were in urban environments. Others were more rural. If Paul was leaving one area, say in a basket outside a wall, for another, no one could say he was doing it for safety reasons or out of cowardice. Like, oh yeah, you can't stand the dangerous places. You've got to go over to the countryside. He's like, nope, I meant dangerous both places. It was, it was always frying pan to fire, frying pan to fire. That was just called whole ministry. One of the perils in the city is mentioned at the end of this chapter. It's the, um, in Damascus, under Eratus the king, that he was guarding the city of the Damascenes or the garrison. They desired to arrest Paul, and he was let down out of a basket through a window. I don't know why these verses are at the end of the chapter and not in the mix here with all the other troubles. I'm, I'm going to go out of order and mention the, the basket story right here. This took place right at the beginning of Paul's ministry life, not too long after his conversion. To consider Saul of Tarsus with official letters from chief priests, etc., with all the authority of a Pharisee of Pharisees, marching into Damascus to arrest Christians. And then not long after that, leaving Damascus, hiding in a basket, the contrast is supposed to strike you. Something changed in Paul. Something happened that took him from arrogant and strong to a guy who has, has to hide it under the laundry, you know, and get smuggled out of the city. And recalling this early experience, perhaps Paul is showing them that this has always been the way he's lived from the beginning as a Christian. Before that, before he was saved, he was arrogant. Before his conversion, yeah, he seemed powerful, impressive, and everything like that. But once Jesus encountered him and flattened him on his back, he blinded him temporarily. He's been running and hiding from people trying to kill him ever since. It wasn't as if Paul at one time had been a rich, shiny apostle who then fell out of favor and went through some hard times. His suffering was the norm. It was the day-to-day -day experience of his Christianity. And he takes pride and joy in knowing that he's sharing his suffering. I thought mentioning perils of waters and then perils in the sea was a little bit redundant, and I'm suggesting maybe Paul just got into a rhythm and needed to just keep writing and mention it twice. I don't know. Um, the last, last in verse 26 is perils among false brethren. Even in established churches, Paul wasn't out of trouble. There were fake Christians that were slandering him, attempting to destroy his work and his reputation. And as we'll see at the end of this list, I think it was, it was this wound that probably cut him the most deeply. But in verse 27, he said, in weariness and toil. That should go without saying, but all of these shipwrecks and beatings made him a bit tired. In sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often. Okay, he mentions hunger and thirst, and then fasting separately. Um, not being able to eat because you're in prison or can't afford food, that's not necessarily the same as fasting from a spiritual point of view. Fasting is voluntarily done for the purpose of strengthening the spirit. And there were times when Paul couldn't eat or didn't have water to drink. I would think the day and the night and the deep, probably, being one of those 
times. But there were other times where, where he may have had those things and went without them of his own free will, knowing that it was a time for fasting and prayer. The mention of sleeplessness could fall into both categories. There were doubtless times when Paul could not sleep. Maybe a day and the night in the deep after a shipwreck. But then there were times when Paul would have gone without sleep intentionally in order to pray and seek the Lord. He says he spent time in cold and nakedness. Okay, with the mention of these two things, we have sort of a, this is like a, a sort of poverty bingo thing happening. And he, he's real close to getting the, the blackout. You're familiar with Christ's words in Matthew 25, where he said, As you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Right? And a list of things that identify the least of these, these brothers of Jesus, include being hungry, thirsty, in prison, and naked. Paul qualifies in spades. Now, I can't imagine that Paul wasn't aware of this passage in Matthew. If he was, and if he intended to draw attention to the connection between himself and the least of these, then he is also identifying himself as a brother of Christ. Jesus said, it's to the least of these, my brothers, that you minister to me. And also, he is inviting the Corinthians to have fellowship with Christ in their care of him. When Paul says, open your hearts to us, he's really saying, I want you to have more of Jesus. He's calling them uh, to invite you know, Paul and the other missionaries to, to, into their church and to share in their ministry. But what he's offering them is an opportunity to care for Jesus himself, which is what we do when we care for the least of these. Verse 28 says, besides the other things... What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Every day, Paul suffered in anxiety for the churches. Shipwrecks and prison, that might be seasonal. Those are now and then troubles. But every single day, Paul's deep concern for all the churches bore down on his pastor's heart. He loved Christians. He loved the church. He loved people. And wanted them to be Christians in the church. For some it may be strange to have this trouble even mentioned in the same list as the beatings and the hunger and the jail time. But the fact that Paul does include it as an end cap to all of his sufferings shows that, his, his, um, that he was no stranger to the magnitude of emotional stress. His love for all the churches caused him suffering, real suffering, that went right along with the shipwreck and the sleeplessness and everything else. Now, of course, this is what really set Paul apart from the other wannabe apostles. It's what he cared for. In caring for the churches like he was their parent, Paul showed him to be a legitimate parent. In the Old Testament, there's the story of King Solomon. Right? He rises to the throne. His wisdom is put to the test. There's the famous story in 1 Kings 3 where two women come before him, each one claiming that a certain child is theirs. And Solomon asks for a sword. And suggest they cut the child in two. That way each woman gets half. Now knowing that it would be impossible for any true mother to go along with that plan, Solomon shows his wisdom. Fake mom says, that sounds like a great idea. Real mom says, no, give her the child. It's better that the child lives and I go without. The concern that, that the true mother... The love that the true mother showed was one where she was willing to go without. She was willing to be deprived for the sake of the one she loved. And for the sake of what was right, because, you know, murder is wrong. In that story, the true mother was identified by her love and her willingness to go without. Paul's playing the same part. He's saying, I'm the one who's gone without. I'm the one who's willing to suffer so that my children 
you, the Corinthians, can live. Daily, my deep concern is for all the churches. My heartache is for them. It's, it's showing, that shows me to be the true apostle and the spiritual father that they need. And what that looks like, what that love looks like, what the sacrifice looks like, from the Corinthians' perspective, they saw it as weakness. They looked at Paul and said, God, we're just, no, that's, not, that's not impressive. It's not shiny. It doesn't look good. He says, who is weak and I am not weak? Paul says, yeah, I am weak. And Christ is strong in me. Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? His, his weakness right here is this emotional, uh, emotional sensitivity that the Corinthians just rolled their eyes at because it didn't look professional. You know, the Paul so... He's mourning over their sins, and he's he's you know not visiting them because he doesn't want to fight. And all of a sudden, they're just like, oh, he's just so he's so weak. And he says, no, no, I'm I'm moved, and that looks like weakness. The emphasis on weakness will come to a head in the next verse, and again in chapter twelve, he'll explain once more why this is important to talk about. But the second half of the verse can be confusing. It's a little bit more clear in other English translations, and I'll read you. One of them says, "Who falls into sin without my being distressed?" For the ESV, it says, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. New American Standard says, who is led into sin without my intense concern? It's about this deep concern for the churches that Paul suffers under on a daily basis. If he sees or hears a church being led astray, he weeps. And the Corinthians say, oh, you're so weak. If, if he hears of a church being made to stumble, it lights a fire under him, it riles him up, he gets angry, he gets emotional, and they say, oh, Paul, you're so unstable, you're so weak, let's pull it together. And again, this, this emotional response in Paul is evidence of the authenticity of his apostleship. It's another case of care, uh, you know, care is proving parentage. The one who cares most about the child is the true mother. The Corinthians have behaved in a certain way common to rebellious adolescents who question their parents' care because of boundaries set up for the child's good. And Paul had come down strong on the Corinthians. Remember, you know, there was that sorrowful letter that isn't in Scripture that we didn't read, and then there's the two letters that we do have, First and Second Corinthians. They share, uh, they have their fair share, excuse me, of correction. But every correction, every word written to the church was born out of this intense concern, this burning indignation at the thought of someone leading his children in the faith astray, at the idea that his kids are going to be taught something not true, that they're not going to be taught well, that they may be led away from the gospel, away from the straight and narrow path. Paul is angry about this. He would have gone to school board meetings, okay? That's Paul. <laughs> Rather than Paul's love being called into question, these behaviors ought to have proven to the Corinthians his legitimate care. He was the one willing to wage war against anything that would do damage to their souls. He was willing to fight against whatever error and vice might lead them astray. And in this, of course, Paul is showing not only the heart of an apostle or a church leader or a ministry, he's drawing our attention to the true heart of our Savior. Paul is once again imitating Christ here and providing a template for us to imitate in turn. The concern that God has for people has led God to wage war. And it has led God to suffer. For God so loved the world that he became weak. God also burns with indignation when we are led astray. He is the God who fights against the enemies of our souls 
and he is the father who chases with every son whom he receives and who chases with his father. When we see the force with which God fights against evil, we don't see this as a reason to doubt his great love for us. We see it as evidence of love itself. When we see Christ on the cross, when we see the weakness of Jesus on Good Friday, which may or may not have been on Friday, when we see the weakness of crucifixion, we don't question God's legitimacy or the power or strength of our Savior. We see it as evidence of the power and the love of our Savior. Similarly, when we see you know, the humiliation of the apostles in the, in the early church, and we see Paul's experiences, we, we are looking beyond those things to see the passion, the cross, the burial of Jesus, and we consider the glory of God in all of these things. The emptying of self that Jesus underwent is his glory. The voluntary setting aside of the trappings of divinity is itself the evidence not only of his great love, but also of the legitimacy of his legitimate claims to divinity. It was because he was humbled that God exalted him above all things. The passage from Philippians 2 keeps showing up in these Corinthian sermons. The one about Jesus becoming of no reputation, emptying himself, becoming as nothing. But it's right after that part about becoming obedient to the point of death that we find Philippians 2 verse 9. It says, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. The exaltation God gives, he gives to the humble. The glory of God is seen in the servants. Paul appeared weak. So did Jesus. This is how Paul could say what he says in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not alone. Now we're being set up for that key verse that's coming up in chapter 12. So this, this isn't the last time we're going to hear about Paul boasting his in, in his infirmities. But that's not the only thing that Paul boasts, will boast in. Or rather, there's another way that Paul boasts in weakness. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, it's an important cross-reference here. And it's also what ties all of this back to you and me. After all, what are we supposed to do with all of Paul's sufferings? What are we supposed to do with this new way of boasting? Galatians 6 verse 14 gives us the answer. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Everything we've read about, Paul's life and ministry bears this out. He's already crucified at the world and is living in and walking in resurrection truth. All throughout 2 Corinthians, we've seen Paul's astonishing list of sufferings and sacrifices and emotional struggles. It's all for the sake of the gospel, but at the heart of it all, Paul's true source of boasting is always the cross of Christ. Christ. He mentions his suffering only to point towards the affected sufferings of Jesus. And just as the cross represents for us you know, this paradox of strength and weakness and glory and humility, so does Paul's life. He's just the mirror, or sorry, not the mirror, the window that we're looking through to the light on the other side. If we zoom out from 2 Corinthians and look at the whole of Paul's writings, the totality of Paul's life, we see that the message he's preaching, even when he's talking like a fool, it's this message of the cross. I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. People look at this list of sufferings and and 
you know, look at Paul's life, and they could think, some Corinthians may, may think, even some modern readers may think, well, how could Paul, why, why would Paul live like this? But he knows that his life is only there to draw your attention to the life of Jesus, where you'll, where you'll ask the same question and get a better answer. Why would he die like this? Paul's list of sufferings is nothing less than a picture of what it looked like for him to take up the cross, cross and follow Jesus. But each saint's testimony, every Christian's life, is supposed to be a sign to point to Jesus. That's not what we, it's not that we look exactly like Jesus, let's face it, we fall short of that, but living towards Christ, pursuing Christ, counting all else, whether qualifications or sufferings, the things you're proud about or the things that cause you pain, counting all of those things as just rubbish so that you can know Christ. This can at least maybe draw attention to the one that you're imitating to pursue the one bearing the cross. When A.W. Tozer wrote about the love of God, he said, I can no more do justice to that awesome and wonderful thing than a child can grasp a star. Still, by reaching towards the star, the child may call attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. That's where Paul lived. Because I can't give the glory of God. I can't, to know the love that surpasses knowledge, to be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray for those things, and I'm pursuing those things. I'm not going to be able to get it in this life. But if I can move in that direction, if I can gesture towards that love, towards that life of Christ, maybe I can at least indicate the direction that we need to be turned towards. <laughs> In pursuing the upward call of Christ. You know, yeah, he was suffering. And he says, I'll boast of my sufferings because by looking at my sufferings, which are the marks of Christ in my body, you'll look past me at the one who suffered for your salvation. I can, I can gesture towards Christ who suffered perfectly. Yeah, Paul loved the church and he said, I love the church. But his love was just a portion of the perfect love of God. And when they saw Paul's love, they were to look past Paul and see the great love with which God had loved. Paul was a father to the church. But there is one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. May our lives be so important to direct the world's attention to this Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love that we get to live towards you, to pursue you, to gaze at you with the eyes of faith. We ask that this word, which you have given us, this, this message that you have fed us with, would have its full effect and not return to you void. That we would live lives that are gesturing towards Christ. We pray that your name would be exalted in this place, in these families, in this church, and in our town. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from the Lord, let's him all creatures here below, praise him above the
You are sent. 